Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. It has been a number of weeks since we've been teaching through the Psalms. I appreciate that Micah was willing to teach last week, and the week before that, we had a private time of prayer, so even though we met at GCA, I didn't do any teaching. And I've been anxious to get back into the Psalms. But then, two nights ago, I was felled, laid low by a kidney stone. Fortunately, yesterday, that little monster left my body. And so today, even though we're not planning to meet at GCA, I feel like it's time to sit down and return to the Psalms. So I am at home, at my desk, and continuing the Psalms teaching for those of you who listen online, which, given this message, is pretty much everybody. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm 34, and in understanding the background of Psalm 34, fortunately, we're given a little bit of a superscript, a little bit of an introduction to this psalm that tells us what David's inspiration was. It is a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech so that he drove him away and he departed. And fortunately, we can go back and look at that story out of 1 Samuel. So let's do that first so that we understand what it was that inspired David to say these words. In 1 Samuel, the previous chapters tell us about the conflict that was brewing between King Saul and David. David had already been anointed to be the next king of Israel, causing Saul to realize that that would take away the rulership from his family, from his posterity. And so Saul actually set out to kill David. And at this moment, David is on the run from Saul. David has made an agreement with Saul's son, Jonathan, so that David has some insight into what's going on with Saul but at this moment, it was necessary for him to flee out of his land. So in 1 Samuel 21, starting at verse 10, we read, Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Now, don't be confused, because what we read at the beginning of Psalm 34 was that David feigned madness before Abimelech. That appears to be the same man who is referred to as Achish king of Gath because Achish appears to be a title as much as a name. But we're also told that he is the king of Gath. That people group is the same people group who produced Goliath of Gath. David had killed their champion with a sling and a stone. 
So there's a tremendous amount of tension, as you might guess, between Gath and Israel at this moment. And between killing Goliath and being so victorious in several different battles, David's reputation has grown tremendously in Israel, causing King Saul all the more consternation and all the more hatred toward David. So David is truly walking into a really dangerous environment for him. David arose and fled that day from Saul, and he went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Do they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? So naturally, the servants of Achish are very concerned about David being in their territory. What is he up to? Is there an army behind him? Is he trying to spy out the land? What is going to be the end result of David being here in our territories? After all, even though Saul sits on the throne, it is David who the people rally around because David has killed his ten thousands. So verse 12 tells us, David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, the king of Gath. Remember, David's just one man. Achish has an army. David is going to be no match for them. So he has to figure out a way to stay away from Saul in Jerusalem and not have either of them kill him. So verse 13 says, so he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands. And he scribbled on the doors of the gate, and he let his spit, his saliva, run down into his beard. So he was giving every indication that he had gone mad. Verse 14 then tells us, Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him here to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? And that seems to be exactly what David was attempting to do. By acting mad, the servants would not take him to the king. Therefore, David would be able to escape the king's ire. And at the beginning of chapter 22, we read, So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So David safely passed through the area of Gath by feigning madness. And we're told in the introduction to Psalm 34 that that was the event that caused David to write these particular words. The superscript says of David, when he feigned madness before Abimelech so that he drove him away and he departed. All of those details line up perfectly with what we just read out of 1 Samuel. And what does David say? What's the opening phrase of this psalm? He's looking back on the fact that he was delivered from two enemies, Saul who wanted him dead, Achish who would want him dead, and he finally found a place to hide in the cave of Adullam. And in all those events, 
David saw the deliverance of the Lord. And so he starts this psalm by writing, I will bless Yahweh at all times. By the way, I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which properly translates Yahweh as Yahweh and not just as capital L-O-R-D. I will bless Yahweh, the only God who is, the self-existent God, the one who is because he is, who declares his own name as being what we know as the Tetragrammaton, the four letters YHWH transliterated into English. That is the God that David particularly is worshiping at this moment, the God of his deliverance. I will bless Yahweh at all times, and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Part of what it is to praise God is to speak well of him, to say things about him that are praiseworthy, and you do that by declaring it. David says continually he will use his faculties, he will use his mouth in order to praise, to exalt, to glorify the God who has delivered him. And he'll do it continually because there's really no end to the worship and the praise of God who deserves to be worshiped and praised every single moment. You can never say to yourself, well, you know, I worshiped him last Sunday, and so I'm all caught up on the worshiping God thing. Worshiping God is a nonstop enterprise because he ever lives and he is ever protecting us and ever providing for us. Therefore, he deserves our constant praise. He deserves that we are constantly speaking well of him and that we are blessing, praising Yahweh at all times. And then in verse 2, David does not take credit for his own cleverness in feigning his madness. He doesn't see that as the cause for his deliverance. Instead, he's going to boast in God himself because it is God who ultimately delivered him. So verse 2 says, My soul will make its boast in Yahweh, and the humble will hear it and rejoice. Everyone who reads this psalm, even to this very day, ends up agreeing with David that God gets all the credit regardless of the circumstances of life. And those who know God, who have been humbled by their understanding of God, those people who have a proper understanding of who God is and who they are, the humble will hear the boast, the praise, the blessing of Yahweh, and then they'll rejoice with David in the fact that Yahweh is in fact Lord of hosts, ever protecting and delivering his people. So lift him up, says verse 3, O magnify Yahweh with me, and let us exalt his name together. So it's more than just David exalting the name of God. Everyone who knows Yahweh, everyone who understands the preservation and the deliverance of Yahweh, we all collectively praise God, magnify God, exalt his name, bless him and praise him continually, using our mouth at all times to say good things about our God. That is a terrific way to start a psalm. 
and even, if I may add a personal note, even something really good to remember during your times of difficulty and trial. Just a couple of nights ago, I was laying in the emergency room, and that's what I did. I praised God, and I worshiped God, even in the midst of my struggles and trials, because I knew that deliverance lay ahead. So, the beginning of this psalm is a really good reminder for all of us. So now David recounts the deliverance of Yahweh, and he says, I inquired of Yahweh, in other words, I asked him, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all that I dread. And yes, David had plenty to dread. Saul and his armies, Achish and his armies, they were all out to get David, and yet David came away from it unscathed. And I am sure in the midst of all that running and in the midst of all that hiding, clearly David prayed to God during all that. That's what he's referring to as, I asked God, I inquired of Yahweh, and then he delivered me. So he clearly answered David's prayer. He delivered me from all that I feared. Oh, not just feared, all that I dread. And then David relates his own circumstances to the circumstances of life of everybody who worships and magnifies and praises Yahweh. And he says of them, they looked to him, to Yahweh, and they were radiant. That Hebrew word means they were lightened, the idea being that they were cheerful. Despite the fact that they were in situations that were dreadful, Nevertheless, they found comfort, they found joy, they found that peace that passes understanding in the knowledge of God's deliverance, and therefore they were radiant, they were cheerful, and their faces will never be humiliated. In other words, those who trust God are never going to have to be embarrassed about the fact that they trusted God in the midst of their circumstances. They're never ultimately going to be humiliated. Then David references himself again and says, this poor man called out. The Hebrew word that is translated poor means afflicted. David was afflicted under difficulty, under dread. And so he called out to God. And Yahweh heard him, and Yahweh saved him out of all his troubles. And knowing that, David is able to look back on his circumstances, look back on the difficulties that he just went through, and glorify God for it. He's able to look back over the course of his life, over the course of his circumstances, and realize that he was incapable of delivering himself through these things, and yet God delivered him, because here he stood, safe and sound, putting ink to parchment, and once again being able to praise God and write it down, so that we could all also think about it and share in the praises of Yahweh. Here I'll simplify it. Life is tough. We've all been through circumstances that we would rather not go through. 
some of those circumstances seem death-defying when we look back on them. And yet, here we are. Did we get here because of our own strength, our own capability? Or are we able to recognize the hand of God that brought us through the difficulties of the circumstances of our lives? Well, that's what David is doing. When he was an afflicted man, he cried out to Yahweh. And the evidence that Yahweh heard him is that David was, in fact, saved out of all his difficulties, out of all his troubles. And we can do the same thing. We can look back on the difficulties of our lives and recognize that God has been faithful, proven by the fact that we are still here. God's protection of us is in fact so complete that verse 7 tells us, the angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. That's kind of where the concept of guardian angels comes from. The angels of God don't just come around and check in with us, but they encamp around us. They stay. They're permanently around us protecting us and taking us through the trials of this life so that we who reverence God, who have a proper fear and respect of God, are rescued time and time again, and our ultimate rescue is going to be when we are delivered from this evil world and we end up standing in the very glory of God. You don't get much more rescued than that. Rescued from your own flesh, from your own sin, from this present evil age. And then you get to stand righteous and holy before God. God is in the enterprise of rescuing his people. And one of the identifying factors of his people is that they fear and respect, properly love and reverence God himself. The angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. And for sake of time, I hope I can just make this passing reference and you'll all remember, but there was a time when Elisha and his servants were surrounded by enemy armies and Elisha said, don't worry, those that are with us are more than those that are with them. And then Elisha prayed and the scales fell from his servants' eyes and he was able to see that the hills were full of angels encamped around them. So whether it's Elisha, whether it's David, whether it's Jesus, we are reassured over and over again that God cares for us, provides for us, never leaves us, and in fact protects us even as we go through the difficulties and trials of life. And that's really good to know. But we, the people of God, know that not just because it's written in the Bible and we've read it, but every one of us can point to an experience and say, I have experienced the deliverance of God. I know what David's talking about. I can relate to that reality of the delivering power of God, the preserving power of God. And that experience is exactly what David talks about in verse 8. It says, Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. That word taste 
means to experience it. It's the Hebrew word ta'am. And even though it can be used to say, eat something, actually get it on your taste buds and understand how it tastes, the process of tasting something to see if it's edible, to see if it's good, is a way of perceiving the value of something before you ingest it. And that's how David is using the word. Experience Yahweh. Perceive Yahweh. Taste and see, and what you'll find out is that Yahweh is good. And that being the case, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in Yahweh. And that's a fact. I I say it over and over again. I don't know how people who have no faith in God, I don't know how they get through this life. I don't know how they get through this world. It doesn't surprise me that alcoholism sweeps our land or drug addiction or the complete profanation of sex or gender or marriage. It doesn't surprise me that there's so much confusion in the world because people who don't know God are unable to trust him, unable to take refuge in him, and therefore their lives are just kind of confusion, complete confusion. And so I agree with David. It is a tremendous blessing when a man is able to see that God is good and then trust him, take refuge in him. That is a tremendous blessing. If God has allowed you, if God has given you the ability to understand who he is, if he's given you eyes to see and ears to hear, then he has blessed you beyond all measure. And you have been able in this lifetime to experience God, to perceive God, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And how very blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear Yahweh. That means proper reverence. It doesn't mean like slavish fear, like you're afraid of God. Instead, understand God for who he is. Recognize him as the judge of all the earth and take your refuge in him. That's what proper fear of Yahweh is. So David says, O fear Yahweh, you his holy ones. You his Kodesh, translated you his saints. You who belong to God, have a proper reverence of God, have a proper fear of God, and if you have that, you will indeed worship and praise God. And that praise will be continually in your mouth. For there is no want, there is no lacking to those who fear him. Then by way of contrast, verse 10 says, The young lions do lack and they suffer hunger. Lions, the king of the beasts, even they, with all their capability and strength, still end up suffering lack and suffering hunger. But they who inquire of Yahweh, those who pray to God, those who ask God for their provision shall not be in want of any good thing. Now that, by the way, is not a name it, claim it verse. That doesn't mean that you get to say, well, I think a new car 
would be a really good thing for me. Therefore, I'm going to ask God for a new car. And then when he doesn't deliver the new car to your driveway the next day, you end up saying, well, then the Bible's not true. What David is referring to when he says good thing are the necessary things of life. Throughout the Bible, what you are promised from God is food and raiment. We see that phrase over and over again. Your body needs a covering. Your body needs food. Even Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, told his listeners, your Father in heaven knows what things you have need of. And yet, he then told them to go and pray to God for those very things. So we are told, whether by David or by Jesus, to go and ask God, go and inquire of Yahweh, but then recognize that he knows what we need, the good things of life, the sustenance of life, the food, the clothing, some shelter. He knows those are necessary things. And David calls them good things. And if you're here listening to me at this very moment, regardless of how old you are or regardless of what circumstances you've been through in life, at this very moment, you're alive you have access to the internet, and you're able to listen to this old bald, scar-bellied preacher talk to you about Yahweh. And why is that? Because he has fed you and taken care of you all the days of your life, bringing you to this exact moment in time. God has been nothing but faithful to you. Even if he has not given you the house that you desire, or the new car, or the perfect job. The fact that you are alive proves that God has done his faithful job for you. So come, you children, listen to me, says verse 11, and I will teach you the fear, the proper reverence of Yahweh. Who is the man who delights in life and loves many days so that he may see good. Generally speaking, I would say that's pretty much all of us. So if you are one of those people, if you fall into that category where God has revealed himself to you, where you've been able to taste and see that the Lord is good, if you are the recipient of the good things that God has provided for you, then be like this. This is how you exercise the fear of Yahweh. It looks like this. Verse 13, guard your tongue from evil. I find it so interesting that whether it's David, whether it's Solomon, whether it's James in the New Testament, there is just so much said about how you use your tongue. When you start flapping your lips, what are you doing with them? Are you doing good things? Are you speaking well of God? Are you encouraging people and lifting them up? Or are you making evil plans? Are you creating destructive schemes in your head? Are you using your tongue to blaspheme holy and good things? Are you using your tongue to tear people down? Are you gossiping? Are you backbiting? David starts right there in how to behave yourself if God has indeed revealed himself to you. Use your tongue to declare the blessings of God. Use your tongue to worship and lift up God and guard your tongue from evil and guard your lips from speaking deceit. 
In other words, stop lying. That idea even appears in the Ten Commandments. Don't bear false witness. Don't lie. Be honest. Tell the truth. That is a hallmark of someone who God has delivered and someone who has a proper reverential fear of God. Then not only should you change your speech, but you should change your overall behavior. Verse 14, depart from evil and replace that evil activity with good activity. Depart from evil and do good. And part of what it is to do good in this world is rather than creating strife between people, instead seek peace and pursue it. Don't expect it to just happen. Not in this evil world, not in this God-hating world. You have to actually pursue it. It needs to be an active pursuit. You have to seek peace between people who have become enemy, and especially between creature and creator. Even in the New Testament, Paul tells us that the ministry of Christianity is the ministry of reconciliation. Not that God needed to be reconciled, but that we need to be reconciled to him. And so we are out preaching Christ as the means of reconciliation between a holy God and his fallen creatures. All of that collectively is departing from evil, doing, acting in good, positive, godly ways so that people will see our good works and praise God because of them. And then we seek reconciliation. We seek peace and we're active about it. We don't expect it to just occur. Instead, we pursue peace with all people. And according to David, when you act that way, God pays attention to you. Here's the way David puts it in verse 15. The eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous. In other words, he's not looking away. He's looking toward you. He's paying attention to you. And his ears are open to their cry for help. So again, this is all part and parcel of instruction in proper fear toward God We worship God not only because he deserves it, but we worship God as part of our pursuit of peace between him and us. And he is watching over us. His eyes are toward the people who act like that, who declare his goodness. And his ears are open to their cry for help. And boy, wouldn't you want that to be the case? Have you ever had the experience where you feel like your prayers are going about as high as your ceiling and then bouncing back down? It's good to know, even in our weakness, even in our incapabilities, even in those times when we feel like we're separated from God, it's good to know that he has always got his eye on us. He always has his angels protecting and delivering us. And his ears are open to our cries for help. He hears our prayers. And because he is a delivering God, the same way that he delivered David, he will deliver us. Because he is good and he will provide for us proven, I will say once again, by the very fact 
that we're here. But in contrast to Yahweh turning his eyes toward the righteous, verse 16 says, the face of Yahweh is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And we've seen examples of that through biblical history, through secular history. Whole people groups have been on the planet and then disappeared. There have been whole tribes of people who lived their lives and then were cut off, and we don't know them, and we don't remember them, and we don't talk about them. And ultimately, as we're going to read, continuing in our study of Revelation on Sundays, ultimately God is going to create not just the kingdom, but then the new Jerusalem, where he is indeed going to cut off all his enemies and all the evildoers from the earth. And why? Well, because Yahweh is opposed to evildoers. It's part of his character. It's part of his nature. It's who he is. He is so righteous and so holy that he can't even look upon sin. Therefore, we can say confidently that his saints, his righteous ones, his people who guard their tongues and guard their lips, who depart from evil and do good, those people who seek peace and pursue it, He's going to keep his eye on them. He's going to protect them. His ears are going to be open to their cries for help and their prayers toward him. But he is in complete opposition to the evildoers of this world. And he's going to cut off their memory finally, once for all. And David emphasizes that contrast again in verse 17. The righteous cry, and Yahweh hears and he delivers them out of all their troubles. Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Or you could alternately read that, he saves those who are contrite in spirit, those who are humble, those who, after their inner man, understand who God is and the distance between us, And then you walk out your lives in thankfulness and in blessing God. Because Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted. And that doesn't mean those who are sad because you lost a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Or perhaps someone died and you're grieving. It means more than that. It means someone who really understands their sinfulness, their rebellion against God, And then have their hearts broken, have their hearts replaced by God who takes out your stony heart and gives you a heart of flesh, a heart of feeling, a heart of comprehension. And that creates in you a contrite spirit, a humility. And the only reason that people become brokenhearted and contrite in spirit is because God has done a work in them. Therefore, they can be called his holy ones, his saints. And it's good to know if you are a saint, a holy one of God, that he is always near. He's always listening to your troubles and your prayers. He understands that you are just dust. He knows that you're going to fail time and time again. But he also knows your love and reverence for him. 
and he sends his angels to protect you, and he provides for you day to day. And I'm going to say it again. I know it's a tad redundant. The very fact that you're here right now, the fact that you had something to eat today, the fact that you're not wandering around naked, proves that God is continuing to provide for you until this exact moment. Therefore, you certainly ought to be fearing, reverencing, worshiping, praising, blessing God, and his praises should indeed be continually in your mouth. The eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of Yahweh is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and Yahweh hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And now remember one more time what inspired David to write these words. He's been on the run from people who are actually trying to kill him. He's avoiding both the king of Jerusalem and enemy kings, and yet God continues to deliver him and protect him. So David can say in an almost summary fashion, many are the evils against the righteous. We'd have to all agree with that. This is a world that does not reward the righteous. This world is not our protection. This world is not our deliverance. Our deliverance comes from God himself. So David says, many are the evils of the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of them all. Look, according to Paul's writing in the New Testament, we have many, many enemies who are also the enemy of Christ. And that final enemy that Christ is going to crush is death itself. But even when that enemy has his day, Yahweh delivers us even from death and takes us to his holy habitation. You really can't lose as long as you have God on your side. He's going to deliver you through all of these evil days in this world. He's going to provide for you. He's going to give you good things. He's going to sustain and protect you. And ultimately, all the evils of this world that come against you are going to be defeated not because of your strength, not because of your power or your cleverness, but it is going to be Yahweh who delivers you out of all of them, including the ultimate enemy. But then David says something absolutely fascinating. In the midst of declaring the deliverance of God, in the midst of declaring the redemptive work of God, he suddenly declares something very prophetic. Verse 20 says, He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Well, that certainly resonates with us. It would resonate to his Jewish audience because they know that the Passover lamb could not have a broken bone. And then we get to the New Testament and Christ, the Passover lamb, who was indeed sacrificed, who did die, on the day of Passover, one of the important details of that moment is that not a bone of him was broken. It was standard practice among the Romans when they crucified people. In order to help those people finally die, 
They would break their legs so that they could no longer push up to get a breath. And yet when they came to Jesus with intention of killing him before the Jewish high day began at sundown, they found that he was already dead and to prove it, pierced a spear into his side and blood and water poured out. And even that event fulfilled prophecy. But in doing that, they were able to forgo breaking his legs, demonstrating, proving once again, that Jesus was the final Passover lamb. So there's this very interesting messianic phrase in this psalm that God keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. And that bit of messianic prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus and the way that he died and the way the Romans treated his body. And it's just so very interesting to me that David would point that out in the midst of a psalm that is all about redemption and protection and provision and praising God. Even in the Old Testament, time and time again, when you talk about redemption, which David is about to do in verse 22, when you talk about redemption, Old or New Testament, Christ is right there in the center of it. Just part of the fascinating nature of the word of God. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked. Again, really fascinating that it is ultimately evil that will be the undoing of evil. The wicked are going to die as a result of their own evil ways. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned because God is a faithful judge. And not only is he going to act on behalf of his people, but he stands adamantly against the unrighteous, the evil, the wicked of this world. But when it comes to his own people, verse 22 tells us Yahweh redeems the soul of his servants. And there is that language of redemption. David, by the Holy Spirit, declares that God does not just forgive people and then bring them into his presence, but that he buys them. He pays a price for them. That's what redeems means to actually lay down a ransom price in order to buy something and make it yours. And the way that we, the righteous, the saints, the holy ones, the way that we are redeemed by God is through Jesus Christ who paid the price of his blood. So God sacrificed his son in order to purchase his people and Christ paid the sin debt on our behalf thereby redeeming us to God, thereby being the ultimate example of creating peace between us and God. Yahweh redeems the soul of his slaves, and all those who trust him, all those who hide in him, all those who take refuge in him will not be condemned. That's a definitive statement. The people who hate righteousness have nothing but condemnation to look forward to. But those who trust in God, who rest in him, who hide in him, who know that their sustenance and their provision day to day, all is a result of him, 
will never be condemned. And once you know that, once you grasp that, once you understand that, you can join in with David. The way that this psalm began, I will bless Yahweh at all times. Once you have some comprehension of what he has done for you, what he is continuing to do for you, what he is doing for you moment by moment, even as he is sending his angels to protect you, even as he is providing for you the good things that you need in your life day by day, how can you not extol God? How can you not bless Yahweh at all times? How can you not continually have his praise in your mouth? And when you boast, you don't boast about yourself. You boast about God. You boast about Yahweh. And all we who are his saints, all we who have been separated from this present evil world, all we who have been humbled, all we who have become brokenhearted, all we collective will hear the boast of David as he boasts in Yahweh. And when we hear it, we will rejoice and we will magnify Yahweh with David and we will all collectively exalt his name together. David learned that theologically, but he learned that also experientially. And that's the way that all of us grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. Not only do we read it in his word, but then the circumstances of our lives confirm to us time and time again that Yahweh indeed redeems his people, protects his people, and that we will never be condemned. And that, my friends, is really, really good news. So I hope you enjoyed Psalm 34. And by the time we get to Psalm 35, God willing, I'll be standing back at the pulpit in GCA and have some people I can actually talk to, some people whose eyes I can look into as we look into the Word of God. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.